Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you. Um, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles together. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 8. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please do join me there as we look at it together. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I uh, serve as the lead pastor here at FAC, and um, I would love to meet you after service if we have not had the opportunity to meet yet. Uh, we consider it a priority here to help new people connect to the FAC body uh, the best that we uh, can, and so please uh, don't be shy. Um, on that note, it bears mentioning uh, before we begin, I, I think Pastor Scott mentioned it earlier, that uh, we are going to be having a welcome lunch uh, on March 6th. For anybody who considers themselves newer to FAC, this is a great opportunity to um, meet other new people, uh, to meet some of the ministry leaders here as well, and, and we're giving you a free lunch, and, and um, that should be convincing enough uh, for you to join us. And so please do mark your calendars for March 6th. Um, we, we, it's free, but we do need you to register so we know how much food to prepare. Um, you can do that at the hub right outside these doors after service. Um, if a free lunch and an opportunity to meet some of the staff and other new people is not enough of an incentive to come, uh, I, I have it on good authority that we're having tacos. And I love tacos. Um, and so I hope you can make it. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to God's word now uh, and feast on a spiritual meal. Uh, this comes from John 15, 1 through 8. Um, before I read, know that this is Jesus talking to his disciples uh, his followers, his closest followers, just a few short hours uh, before he would be betrayed by Judas and then go on to be hung on the cross the next day. Uh, and so this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 1, John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. And dear Father, as we boldly approach your throne and take up your word this morning, would we approach our time now with the degree of humility that is always needed when we come to Scripture? Would we recognize that our minds are tainted and distorted by our own selfish ambitions and our own sin, that our worldview is skewed apart from the knowledge of you, God, and that it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would desire you above all worldly treasures? Would you be our pursuit this morning, Father, as you have pursued us? And would you draw us nearer as we commit ourselves to your word this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you've probably heard it said that a uh, picture is worth a thousand words. 
which is probably why Jesus would often teach his disciples and followers using pictures. And this is especially evident in the book of John as throughout the entire gospel account, um, Jesus shares seven what we would call I am statements. I am, uh, where he compares himself to a certain image. And, and all seven of the images were rich with Old Testament symbolism. And, and, and each provided a rich insight into Jesus' identity, who he actually was. Uh, th- this morning, we're only going to focus on just that last of the I am statements that he says. Uh, and, and it's helpful for us to remember the context, the setting of this particular uh, teaching, this particular discourse. Uh, once again, this is the night that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities and crucified the following day. And, and a huge portion of the book of John is dedicated to this time period, to, to this, um, uh, this, these events and these conversations that happened right before Jesus was arrested on that final day. Uh, you could actually start in John chapter 13 and go all the way to John chapter 17, and all of that content it happened within a few hours of, 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 of Jesus' time before he would be arrested. Um, it, it was the final hours with his closest followers. And one of the bombshells that Jesus drops in his teaching during this evening in John 14 is that very soon he's going to go away. He's going to leave. He's going to go to his father's house in heaven, but that they can rest assured, his disciples can rest assured because he's going to actually prepare a place for them. And when all of the necessary preparations are, are, are finished and ready, he will someday come back to get his own, to get his disciples. And so this naturally raises the question of the disciples, well, what are we to do until you come back? What is our relationship, Jesus? We've walked with you. We've sat under your teaching. We've had meals with you. We have lived life with you. Every waking minute, we've kind of been at your side and you're going to leave us. So what will our relationship look like in your physical absence? Jesus continues in chapter 14 to explain that they're not going to be left to fend for themselves, but they will actually be given his spirit. Jesus calls him the helper, the Holy Spirit. And with that in John 14, we see that by the power of the Holy Spirit, their relationship as disciples, as followers uh, with Jesus and all subsequent disciples for that matter, many of us who sit here today in this very room um, have a continued relationship with Jesus even though he is not physically present. That's the message and that's the point of John chapter 14. And then Jesus continues in this mindset, in this frame in John 15 because he wants to describe what this relationship looks like using a picture. And it's a picture that we're very familiar with. I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is a picture that many of us uh, will be familiar with here in Erie, right? You could hop on I-90 and go east and, and, and head into Harbor Creek, 
Head into northeast, and before you realize it, you are in the middle of wine country. Uh, uh, you witness the tens of thousands of acreage of vineyards, and it's quite a marvelous sight to see when the grapes are in harvest, and the vineyards are just absolutely lush with fruit. Many of us have seen that in, in the flesh, and in the same way, this is not a picture that would have been lost on Jesus' disciples because the image of the vineyard was actually somewhat of a national symbol for Israel. And it was a very recognizable image. In fact, if you went to worship in the temple, which if you were Jewish at the time, it's what you did, um, the temple gates were adorned around the gates, a, a golden grape vineyard. And on this vineyard, it said that there were these golden grape clusters that were larger than full-grown men. And so this is a picture that they regularly saw in Jerusalem. It's a relevant illustration for Jesus' disciples at the time. But what lingers here in Jesus' analogy, more prominently than just the image of a vine, is actually the historical understanding of the vine. We actually see, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that Jesus here is not, ex- uh, is, is not um, explaining or introducing a new picture, a new analogy, but he's expanding on an old one. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often, in several passages, a handful of passages, compared to a vine. And if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, I want to just... Um, point out this one particular instance. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah writes about this and how God took Israel out of Egypt. He he took the vine out of Egypt and and he planted it and and he gave it everything that it needed to produce fruit. And he cared for it and he loved it and he tended to it. But he was greatly disappointed to find that despite his tender love and care and involvement of the vine, the fruit that was produced from the vine of Israel was a worthless fruit. In your English translations, it probably says something like that of a wild fruit in Isaiah 5. But the picture that we get is that it's, it's a rotten fruit. It's a bad fruit. It's not a usable fruit. In the vine produced worthless, rotten fruit because the vine of Israel was corrupt. And it was sinful and it rejected God. There was no nourishing sap from that vine. As a result, Isaiah writes that the vineyard of Israel was overgrown with briars and thorns and it looked nothing like a vineyard should look like. It just appeared to be just this big giant heap of waste. But then Jesus comes along as a sprout as a shoot in the middle of this wasteland of a vineyard. And he tells his disciples, I am the true vine. That is quite a profound statement in this, con- in this context for the disciples. For Jesus to say, I am the true vine. You see, having lived a sinless life, Jesus lived in perfect submission and obedience to God the Father. 
He is the true vine. And that, that is to say that all other vines that you could possibly be attached to in this world will only leave you lifeless because anything else other than Jesus is a false vine. It's a corrupt vine. That is who Jesus is, the true vine. But he doesn't stop his analogy there. He continues and he introduces another character into the picture, and that's God the Father. In verse 1, he says, I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. In other words, God the Father is the farmer in this picture. The farmer, the vine dresser, uh, as the farmer in the vine dresser, God not only plants the vineyard, but once again, he tends to it. He takes care of it. He is actively involved in the vineyard because no vine dresser in their right mind just plants the vine and then leaves and hopes for the best. Right? No, the best vine dressers are the ones who continually and consistently engage in the work of the vineyard. This is to tell us that God did not create the world and then spin it into motion and then just sit back and watch the wind-up toy play out. No, he is actively, even to this day, involved and working in his creation. He intercedes into the world in order for it to produce what he has set out in his plan to produce. And in this analogy, God is interacting um, with two different types of branches. This is a tale of two branches, two additional characters, two uh, different types of people. There are branches that are alive and there are branches that are dead. There are people who are spiritually alive and there are people who are spiritually dead. And God gathers all of the dead branches and he removes them from the vineyard. According to verse 6, he makes a burn pile for them. He gets them out of the vineyard. That is his involvement with the ones who, who are dead, the dead branches. But his involvement in the vineyard doesn't stop at just collecting the dead branches we might be surprised to find that he's also actively involved in the ones that are alive. Jesus says that he prunes them. Now, now that's a pretty jarring image, right? Because to prune means to cut it. Now, if you're someone like me who has, hasn't a clue about gardening, to, to, to see someone out there hacking away at a plant... My first gut reaction is one of confusion. What are you doing? That's a perfectly good branch. You're ruining it, right? What are you? This is a mess. What are you doing? But the gardener knows that while the branch is indeed alive, it is bearing fruit, he needs to cut off the parts of the plant that suck away at the nutrition. There are parts of the plant that need to be removed in order for more nutrition to flow. He, he is clearing away anything that gets in the way. So what this means is that God carves away at the life of one, of, of one who is spiritually alive. That although alive, still needs some work. Because there are still things 
in our life that need to be removed, that need to be cut away, sometimes even painfully. And, and, and how does God go about pruning us? What are the shears that God wields in his hands? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 3. Right? He, he's actually looking to his disciples and Jesus affirms them to be alive. And he says, already you are clean. Now that's an odd word to use here, right? Je- Jesus was just talking about pruning a branch and now he's just talking about the disciples like taking a bath, right? They're clean. You guys are clean. But that's not the, the, that's not the sense that we get from the word clean here. Um, it, it's, in a sense, it's not too far of a reach to suggest that a pruning is a sort of cleaning, right? When you prune, you are also cleaning. You could say that it is uh, clean cut, right? It, it, after you prune, you could say the branch is now clean, the vineyard is clean. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make, that they have been pruned, that they have been cleaned. And this is further confirmed when you consider the original language. It's an odd word for us here in English, but in Greek, the word cleaned is very close and sounds a lot like the word pruned. And so Jesus is actually poetically making a play on words. To, to communicate that God has done to the disciples, he has pruned them, he has cleaned them up, he has, um, he has done the process of, of, of taking the things away or is in the process of taking the things away that are getting in the way. And so, so Jesus tells them, you, you've been pruned, you are clean cut, already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so once again, ask the question, how does God the Father prune? It's by his word. It's by his word. And the word for word here, it actually speaks to the entirety of Jesus, who he is in the flesh. The entirety of Jesus' message. That Jesus is the word in the flesh. If you go back to John chapter 1, where he writes that the word became flesh, that word for word in John chapter one is the same word for word here in verse three. God, Jesus is, is, is saying that God the Father continually, continually shapes disciples who are alive by his word, by the gospel, by the full knowledge and revelation that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he came into this world to save that which was lost. And so what we find here is that those who are spiritually alive are truly molded, not by their own experiences, not by their own understandings, not even by their own influences, but by the full life of the person of Jesus, by God's word. And God does this, why he prunes his word so that we may not just bear fruit, but bear more fruit. As the farmer looks to yield crops, he wants to bear the most fruit possible. He wants the harvest to be the the best harvest it can be. That is God's ultimate desire that we bear more fruit. And our fruit is one of two distinct yet inseparable marks of a branch that is alive. 
We're going to walk through both of these, but in this passage, there are two marks of true believers that stand out, that are distinct, that are separate, but connected. And we've alluded to both of them already. So the first distinguishing mark of a branch that is alive is just that it bears fruit. It's something that just happens naturally as a virtue of being alive. Right From an outsider's perspective, if you go to a vineyard, we can attest to the fact that the branch is alive and that it's healthy because it's producing fruit. If it's producing fruit, we know that it's alive. And people who are alive spiritually will see fruit in their life. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. If you are spiritually alive, there will also be spiritual evidence that you are alive. Now you look at that and you say, that the fruit, that sounds like a pretty important part of this analogy. If the evidence that I am spiritually alive is dependent on the fruit that I produce, it begs the question, what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Right? What kind of fruit, what, kind of, what does this spiritual fruit actually look like? What does it taste like? What type of fruit are we talking about here? And a common misconception among a lot of people is that fruit means success. It means health and wealth and thriving. People think that it means ministry success or a successful program or a well-attended event or a large church. Right, we would look at popular ministries and say they are fruitful. But you will never in Scripture find the word fruit equated with those things. That, that is not the kind of fruit that Jesus speaks to here. What you will find, however, in Scripture is that it defines fruit in the terms of spiritual qualities. Right? Paul reminds the Galatians what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And keep in mind, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's not plural. It's one fruit. And Paul says, you bear the fruit of the Spirit, and this is what it looks like. This is what it tastes like. The fruit of the Spirit is not success. It's not prosperity. It's, it's love. And it's joy. And it's peace. And it's patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is what the fruit tastes like. It's not some kind of external measure of success, but an internal spiritual change. The fruit that Jesus speaks of is not ministry size or apparent success. It's transformation. Now you can sit here and say, There's a, you can transform into a lot of things. What kind of transformation? Fruit in our life is when we transform and begin to look less like ourselves spiritually and more like Jesus. It's when I stop looking at the world through my eyes and I begin looking at the world through Jesus' eyes. It's when my decisions are less like the ones that I would make in my own sin and are much more like the decisions that Jesus would make 
in his perfection. It's when I love the unlovable because Jesus loves the unlovable. It's when I know joy because I have the fullness of uh, Jesus' joy in me. It's when I know peace that surpasses understanding and so on and so on. The fruit that Jesus speaks of here is Christ-likeness. God prunes those who are like Christ by his word, those who have been found to be in union with Jesus so that they may become more like Christ. And if you are not convinced that this is the type of fruit that Jesus speaks of, we need to consider the analogy as a whole. When Jesus makes it clear, once again, that he is the vine and we are the branches. If a vine dresser plants a grape vine, it would be quite shocking to them if the vine, instead of grapes, produced a watermelon. Because grapevines don't produce watermelons. They produce grapes. And to expect a watermelon from a grapevine would be quite foolish. And even the vine dresser plants the grapevine because he desires grapes. If he wanted a watermelon, he would plant a watermelon vine. And so to assume that the fruit in this passage is any other kind of fruit other than Christ's likeness is as foolish as expecting a watermelon to sprout from a grapevine because Christ is the vine who supplies the nourishment and supplies the nutrients which course through our veins. Uh, And what happens is it yields little Christs. That's what actually the term Christian means, literally little anointed ones. We're, We're like little mini copies of Jesus running around. That's what he wants to produce as we are brought into union with Jesus, as we are attached to him. He is reproducing himself in us by his rich living power. Which is actually the second distinguishing mark of a branch that is alive in this passage. The the, the first mark is that the branch that is alive bears fruit. Right, we, we know it to be alive because it bears fruit. The second mark is that the branch is alive because it is truly attached to the vine. Right, what's more important than the branch that bears fruit in this passage is how the branch bears fruit to begin with. I made the mistake even earlier by making the suggestion that we as branches produce this fruit when that's not the case at all. The branches actually just function as a conduit. The vine is the one that produces the fruit. And it's very important to understand that the emphasis on this passage is not on bearing fruit, but rather how the fruit comes about. And it comes about from Jesus. Many people take this analogy and they focus so much on bearing fruit that they forget the reason Jesus told this, 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 this analogy. The, the reason Jesus shared this picture was so that they could see not us, but him. The emphasis is on Jesus. 
It comes about from Jesus. And Jesus goes on at the beginning of verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. As I've mentioned before, we must be very careful to recognize the correct order. Fruit bearing is a byproduct of, of the branch being connected to the vine. It comes about naturally if you're connected to the vine. Us becoming more like Christ is dependent on being truly attached to Christ, not the other way around. You see, we are not attached to the vine by virtue of the fact that we bore fruit apart from him. No, we bear fruit by the virtue of the fact that we are connected to the vine. Now, verse 5 is a very important verse that has a couple of implications. Um, The first implication, we're going to once again walk through both of these. The first implication is that those branches that are attached to the vine will remain attached to the vine. And here is the line of logic. The the, the branches that are connected to the vine, uh, they bear fruit. That's the first step in this line of logic. Branches that are connected to the vine bear fruit. And once again, there are no fruitless Christians. According to verse 5, if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. Jesus says it, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That means that the branches that God takes away that do not bear fruit have to be branches that although you could perceive as being attached, were never truly attached to the vine to begin with. Because if they were, they would have bore fruit. And if they bore fruit, God would not have taken them away to the burn pile. And so let me be a little bit more blunt. If you haven't um, connected the, the dots yet, we're going we're gonna to get a little bit of controversial here. Uh, many people try to use this passage to say that one can detach themselves from the vine. One can lose the salvation that they have in Christ. That, that you better bear fruit or you're going to be in trouble. But once again, that's to suggest that we're the ones bearing the fruit and not the vine. I I know that there are some even here in this room that would hold to this view. And I might get in a lot of trouble for this, save your tomatoes for later, but I would graciously and adamantly disagree because the logic of verse five actually breaks down if you were once in the vine and now you are not. If you were a branch that was alive and now you are dead, it actually calls into question the life-giving qualities of the vine if it isn't bearing fruit in you, which is impossible according to verse 5. Either that or your fruit becomes more than just a byproduct of being attached to the vine. Your fruit means more, carries a greater significance than just a cause and effect relationship that your attachment to the vine is somehow contingent and dependent on the fruit that you bear. Once again, as if you are somehow the source of the fruit, not the vine. At that point, your fruit is no longer a byproduct of your attachment to to the vine, as Jesus says, but rather your attachment to the vine is a byproduct of your fruit, and it's all backwards, and it doesn't even make sense in the analogy. It doesn't work. 
You see, it is by God's grace through faith that you are saved. And so why would you not continue to be saved or remain in Christ by anything other than his grace? If I didn't have to be good enough to enter into salvation, why do I have to be good enough to continue in salvation? Don't get me wrong, the fruit-bearing element is extremely important. If you are a believer, you will bear fruit. And if you do not bear fruit, it could cause one to call into question if you're really a believer. And so holiness has to be there. Righteousness has to be there. But your salvation is not contingent on your good works. It is contingent on the grace of God. all of a sudden this becomes a works-based relationship, right? Once again, good works will happen as a result of being attached to Jesus, but they are not the reason you are attached. You are attached because Jesus sought you out and he called your name and he brought you into union with him out of his graciousness. And to say that you can lose that, is an insult to God's grace. And it's inconsistent with even what John says earlier in John 6.37 when he said, all that the Father gives me, once again, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me will come to me and, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or how about John 10? When Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so you wonder, well, then what are the dead branches? What are the, he actually says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What could this possibly mean then? The dead branches in John 15 that Jesus speaks about are those who appear to be in him, but really aren't. In the context, once again, we have to remember the context here because it helps us in our understanding. At this point in the evening, the betrayal of Judas is imminent. Right before this teaching in John 13, Jesus sat down with his 12 disciples and he told all of them that somebody, one of them among the 12, was about to betray them. He was going to be betrayed by somebody who sat in that very room. And this was wild. There was, a, there was an uproar among the disciples saying, that can't be, that's impossible, Jesus. Who is it? Is it me? Is it him? Is it, is it so-and-so? They had no clue. And then Jesus looked to Judas and actually dismissed him out of the group. Judas isn't even here in this passage. He's not one of the disciples that is hearing this teaching because Jesus dismissed him and he said, go do what you're going to do and make it quick. Let's get this over with, Judas. Judas only had a superficial attachment to Christ. He was a disciple by name only. And outwardly, he was indistinguishable from the other disciples. He looked like a branch, but he was never truly connected to the vine. And this is consistent with what John later writes in 1 John, in his epistle, John, 1 John 2.19. When, when Paul addresses the church in regards to people like this, right? Uh, people who appeared to be in the faith and then walked away from their faith. 
The church is saying, what, what do we do in those situations? And John instructs the church into relation to those people. He writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be, become plain that they all are not of us. You see, those who do persevere, those are the ones who are truly attached to the vine. And once again, anytime you see perseverance in Scripture, like bearing fruit, it's actually evidential to being attached to the vine. That's the first implication of verse 5, the fact that we are attached and those that are attached are truly attached and will remain attached. The second implication of verse 5 comes about when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. With this, we see that any kind of moral or behavior modification achieved apart from Jesus is artificial at best. It's not the real fruit It's no different than the plastic fruit that you put as a centerpiece on your kitchen table. You can take a look at it and it looks pretty convincing to the eye, but as soon as you pick it up, you know that it's not the real fruit. And even if you dabble with it, even if you're as gullible as I am, who may or may have not tried to take a bite out of real fruit in the past, all it takes is one bite to know that this is not real fruit. And we must avidly avoid and be on our guard for anything that promotes transformation and wholeness apart from Christ. Because any other vine that we can attach ourselves to will only produce in us the fruit of that vine. And that vine is a false vine if it's not Jesus. And some of these false vines are pretty clever. Let me give you an example of something that happened even within our community. Several years ago, there was a very popular awareness initiative throughout the community called Take Me to Worship. You still may see signs to this day. Some of you may even have bumper stickers from this thing on your car. Uh, And if that's you, I'm just making a whole bunch of enemies (laughs) this morning. I don't mean it uh, maliciously, I promise. Uh, On their website, takemetoworship.org, this is a direct quote. They said that the movement is grounded in research that shows children who attend worship one hour per week do better in many areas of life, including grades, family communication, reduced violence tendencies, lower risk of suicide, and enhanced self-worth. The entire premise of this initiative is that if my child merely attends a place of worship, it doesn't even matter who you're worshiping. Go to the Mormon church. Go go to the kingdom hall down the street. Go to a place of worship for one hour, they say, and you will have a better kid. And there's not a single mention of Jesus on the entire website. So say what you will about the statistics. They very well may be true, but behind the glossy and polished facade of external behavior modification for many people is nothing more than a dead branch. And here in John 15, Jesus says, I don't want morally good people who excel in life and thrive in life. I want Christ-like people who are utterly dependent on me to provide for them the rich nourishment of life. I want people who are attached to me, who abide in me, who believe in me and believe my words. 
I want people who entrust their life to me because they know, having seen the glory of God, that apart from me, they're dead. And when one realizes that when they trust Jesus for their salvation, a whole new world of life opens up and it changes everything. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we interact with the world. It changes even how we interact with God. We are given access to God in a way that dead branches don't have. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now, let's be clear on this. This is not a blank check of an opportunity for us. This is not a promise that if I ask Jesus for a new car, he's going to give me a new car. One commentator puts it best, so I'm just going to quote him. He says that prayer that is itself inspired by the spiritual presence of Jesus and that is in harmony with his will and that is in accord with what he is doing and nurturing the vineyard, that prayer will succeed. And the ramifications of this in ministry is profound, right? We in the American church in a Western culture, we are obsessed with methods and goals and vision casting. We have seemed almost to a fault to take practices that have proved successful in the secular business world, another vine, and we've tried to apply them to the work of the church. And I'm going to sound like a giant hypocrite in a couple of weeks because everybody knows if you've been involved with FAC that we're working through a vision developing process and we've just about crossed the finish line. And in March, we're going to, we're going to share that vision and we're going to point people in, into the future of what God has in store for us here at FAC. Um, but before we get there, it's absolutely essential for us to realize that, that while methods and goals and vision casting are important and why we have a biblical responsibility to pursue them with excellence, the best strategy that we could ever pursue is to just ask God for it. Just go to him as the giver of all life, the giver of Christ-likeness, and ask him that there would be fruit among our people in this place. Just ask God to produce the fruit through us as branches as he's promised that he will. And when he does produce an abundance of fruit here, when he does produce Christ-likeness through, through people that cross paths with us and us included, we must remember that this is not for our glory, but for his. Whatever good comes out of what we do, it's best for us to just step aside so that God rightfully gets the credit and not us. Right, that's verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The whole purpose of all of this, the whole purpose of why we gather, the whole purpose of why we diligently pursue the good things that God has prepared for us to do in life is so that we can in turn look to God and give him glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that as we studied it, that we were shaped by it. Perhaps, Lord, there was some pruning this morning and perhaps it was painful. Um, but we know, Lord, that as those of us who are believers, we know that this is for our good. And, and we desire to look more like Christ and less like ourselves. And so, Father, cut away.
We thank you for your graciousness and your goodness to us. And we give you all of the glory in the world for what you have done on our behalf, despite our own open rebellion against you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.